0: If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it or turn it on, whatever the case is, to John chapter 19. If you're using the, the Pew Bible, if you want to turn to page 906, uh, that would be the exact place uh, to get to this morning. Um, all of us have different skills, you know, a variety of ranges of skills. and. Um, I think over the last six weeks, God has kind of wanted to tell us that we all need to develop our snow shoveling skills. At least that's what it seems like. A couple of elders reminded me before the service that every two weeks, it seems like we get a big dump of snow on the Monday and Tuesday. And I was told that tomorrow's not that schedule, but it would be the following Monday and Tuesday. And guess what the extended forecast says we're going to get? More snow. So you're going to develop those skills. Now, me getting up here this morning has nothing to do with me predicting the weather forecast. It has nothing really for me to tell you about my skills of shoveling snow. But it was because of shoveling snow with Carrie and McKelly on Monday night that another skill popped into my mind. And really, the skill that popped into my mind would be a weak skill for me. And you might want to call this skill the going out on a dinner. Date skill, and my weakness in some of those areas. I don't know why it came to me, but as we were shoveling, I was reminded that 32 years ago this month, that I took Carrie out for dinner. Now I'm not saying I haven't done it since then, but if you hear this story, you might realize why she wouldn't want to go out with me again. But on this particular night, it was a Friday night, and it was very early in the date, and. Uh, I'm not a soda drinker, but, you know, Carrie was drinking Diet Coke, so I thought, well, maybe I should have some soda, too, to kind of impress her. So, there was a couple on the table. There was a couple of… my. It'll make a whole lot more sense in a couple of minutes, <laughs> I pray. Um, the waiter had put, you know, two glasses of Coke on the table full of ice, now, at that particular moment, I realized since they put a straw in it that I wasn't close enough to be able to suck on the straw, so I thought, hey, I'll pull my chair in. And to me, the most logical way to pull the chair in was to put, the weight on, put my weight on my elbows on the table and then using my feet to hook it around the chair, scoot myself up, slide the chair in. Now, for a second or really a fraction of a second, that struck me as a really good idea. Except, the table didn't have four legs. The table had a pedestal in the center and it wasn't necessarily very stably connected. So when I put my weight on the table with my elbows, the table and the Coke coke cups started to tip towards me. At that moment I realized I had an important decision to make. So I lifted my elbows off the table. For those of you that have taken physics, you know that there's for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So when I lifted them off, instead of the table tipping this way, now it tipped this way. So suddenly and very unexpectedly, Carrie received a bath of Coke and ice. Quick aside. By this point in our relationship, quite literally, I had fallen in love with her. And I don't have great dating skills, clearly. <laughs> so, to be honest, what I did a lot of times is I would, I tried to figure out, like, how do I not screw this up? Because I, I think I'd like this to go somewhere, so how do I not screw this up? So what I would do with some regularity is I would talk to my older sister and say, okay, if this happens, how do I do this? And, you know, how how do I operate in a date so it goes well? But you know what? My sister never told me, and I never anticipated asking, what do you do when you spill Coke and ice on your girlfriend? What do you do? So I was kind of in this position of I've got to shoot from the hip, and I'm a preparation freak. And so I'm like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, I probably need to say something. Now realize this is all taking place in an instant, okay? This wasn't drug out, it was in an instant. I'm like, what do I got to say? So some of you that have been here a few times know I'm a little bit obvious. So I stated what seemed like to me a very obvious question. I said, is it cold? Now, before Carrie could answer that question, before she could verbalize anything, the lady at the next table, whose meal I obviously had disrupted by my action, said, is it cold? (laughs) Now, the tone of voice she used was very clearly, how could you be so obvious and so stupid in three words? Now, at this point, you may be wondering, why are you telling us this story? Here's why. Obvious words can easily be overlooked. Now, sometimes, quite honestly, that's the right thing to do. Just overlook the obvious words. But as the poster child for Captain Obvious Let me suggest to you, do not always overlook the obvious things. Do not always overlook the obvious words. Now at this point, you also may be wondering, hey, I thought we were in this series on Jesus' final words on the cross. And... What is the connection between obvious words and Jesus' final words? I mean, that just doesn't seem quite logical. How how does this come together? Well, I want you to read with me John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, and we'll kind of see if we can get to how these connect. So John wrote, inspired by the Spirit of God, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, when we talk about these final words of Jesus, Jesus saying these things, we need to remember it really is in the context, the kind the of the horrificness of, of the cross, that Jesus is experiencing incredible things. And last week, we took some time to describe some of the spiritual realities that were involved in the cross of literally God putting our sins on Jesus And of that profound reality, that profound thing of Jesus experiencing being forsaken of God to where Jesus said those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, now those are very spiritual realities. They're incredibly true, but they're not necessarily in the realm of all physical things. And so for just a minute, I want to we're going to get, I mean, I hope there's a lot of spiritual realities we're talking about, but I, I just want to zoom in for a second on some of the physical reality of what Jesus was going through on the cross. Now, from the arrest and, and, and really the, the, the trial and, and the preparation for the crucifixion, we kind of get a sense when you read the biblical account that Jesus was going through a lot of things that were not very easy, that were not very simple, that were not very pleasant. You, you could say He was mistreated and that's probably a, a weak way of saying it. You could say He was abused. We know because of history and we know because of the biblical account that part of the build-up to the crucifixion for Jesus was to be whipped or scourged. there's no really, I'm not trying to make this gross, I'm not trying to, you know, make you want to skip lunch kind of a thing, but the reality is with the way he would have been scourged, Jesus' back, potentially from actually his shoulders maybe down almost to his knees, would have been turned into hamburger. And I've read some things lately that would suggest that they also may have rotated him around and there may have done some of that on his chest cavity as well. Basically what that means, and again, I'm not trying to be gross, but here's the reality. Jesus would have experienced a significant blood loss because of what was happening before he ever got to the cross. I am not a medical doctor and I would not pretend to understand most of what I read this week related to some of the medical things described and the fancy words used to describe what Jesus went through. But the conclusion I could kind of understand. They said basically, the medical experts who looked at, hey, this is what the Bible says Jesus went through and and what we can figure out from historical documents about what crucifixion all involved is that it's a very likely Very, very likely that Jesus, like virtually everyone who experienced crucifixion, was probably dehydrated by the time they had hung on the cross. They're hanging there. They hadn't had anything to drink. Probably for hours they would be having that. So there is a sense, folks, in which Jesus saying, I'm thirsty or I thirst is kind of an obvious thing to say. I mean, it's not something to be like, oh, wow, that's new news. You'd kind of expect somebody on the cross who had gone through all of that to be dehydrated, that his mouth and his throat kind of felt like the Sahara Desert and he was thirsty. But then you ask the question, hang on a second, if those words are so obvious, why were these such obvious words included in this list of final words of Jesus? I mean, you kind of expect him to say, I'm thirsty. Why did it make the list. Why is it a part of this? Or maybe another way to say it is how could Jesus' obvious words of I thirst, how could those words help us get a deeper sense of God's love and help us kind of know how to live life? How did those words do anything for us? Well, to try and answer that question, I kind of want to ask you to consider with me sort of two big picture observations about life. Okay? And we'll tie them together in a second. First big observation, as you and I travel down the road of life, okay, whatever age you are, you and I are going to be shaped by different things. Okay? Some of the things that shape our lives are are going to be really good things. Some of them are going to be really bad things. Okay, so you and I can be shaped because, hey, we had a coach or a teacher or a parent or somebody that really took an interest in us and invested in us. You know, I, even in saying that, I have flashings of memories in my mind of people that said things to me that really kind of empowered me in a sense. And in some ways, I do what I do for a living because of those words. I was shaped by those things, and that's a good thing. On the other hand, though, there's some terrible things that happen to us, some evil things that happen to us. Maybe we've been abused, or or maybe there's been a lie that's just basically kind of almost been tattooed on our minds and our hearts and our souls, and it marks us. It's not good. It's shaped us. It's a part of life. Okay, so first big picture thing, we get shaped by a lot of things in life. Second big picture thing would really be that God's purpose. God's purpose for his people, okay? People that have turned from sin to God and trust him, the Lord Jesus is their savior. God's purpose for the people like that according to Romans chapter 8 verses 28 and or 29 and 30 is that God's people become like the Lord Jesus. They become conformed to Him. They become like the Lord Jesus in character and in convictions and in conduct. That becomes sort of a part of their lives. Now, the way that starts, the the way we enter into God's purpose in that sense, is we do, we meet the Lord Jesus. We enter into a relationship with Him by trusting Him as our Savior. And then, once we're in that relationship, we've kind of met Him, we've begun that relationship, that relationship then kind of grows out of that. God's purpose keeps unfolding, you could say, as we follow the Lord Jesus, as we walk with Him through life. Now, what do those two big picture things have to do with Jesus thirsting, with Jesus saying, I thirst? Well, here's the thing. I honestly believe The Jesus words when He said, I thirst, are really meant to be something to move us to start and then really re-spark our desire to walk with Jesus. To kind of go with Him through life. To follow Him in life so that we would become more like Him. You see, underneath the obvious words of I thirst... Underneath that, I, I do believe there's sort of two shaping truths, two big life shaping truths that are meant to mark our lives, to shape us so that we really do begin to live life the way we're supposed to. Yeah. To shape us so that we understand more of the depth of God's love. So in the rest of the time we have together this morning, what I want to do basically is just talk about two shaping truths. Two things that really should mark our lives. Shape us so we move toward God's purpose. Okay, shaping truth number one. This should be true of us. This is where Jesus, I think, wants us to go to. Is we should delight in God's sovereignty. First truth he wants us to get is really to be shaped by is we delight in the sovereignty of God. And when we use the word sovereignty, that's maybe not a word we use all the time, so let me sort of define it. What we mean by sovereignty is we mean that God is the ultimate or the supreme ruler of everything, okay? So word are the light in the fact that God is supreme over all, that He is the ultimate, that He is the one who's in control of everything. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jesus saying, I thirst, and God being the supreme ruler, how do those go together. That one seems kind of trivial, one seems kind of obvious, and one seems huge. How do they connect? Well, I want you to read with me again from John chapter 19, this time just zooming in just on verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Okay? I want you to just kind of focus in on just those phrase, that phrase, knowing that all was now finished. Now the idea of those words, sort of what's behind that expression, what that expression means is that Jesus had done everything God had called them to do. That as Jesus is hanging on the cross, kind of laid in the, the crucifixion process near the very end of it, He knows I came to do what God sent me to do, and it's pretty much done. We're in the final lap, so to speak. We're we're about to cross the finish line of why I came. Now, on Time Change Sunday, I don't expect that you all got up extra early. It probably felt extra early. But if you had got up extra early this morning and said, hey, I'm going to read through the entire Gospel of John, if you had done that, you would have actually been at this point when we get to John 19 going, we've got to be close to this being done. You see, in John chapter 2, when Mary and Jesus and some of the disciples were at a wedding, Mary asked Jesus to do something and Jesus' response was, woman, it's not the hour. It's not time yet. And then if you go into John chapter 12 and I can't I should have double checked the reference it's about verse 34 or so somewhere in there a number of gentiles come to the disciples and say hey we want to meet this Jesus guy and Jesus says my hour has now come and Jesus is saying basically it's go time now that would have been late in the Holy week. This would have been probably on the Thursday morning. And if you read then in John chapter 13, verse 1, when Jesus is in the upper room, he uses an expression. An expression is used in the editorial comments that it's time for Jesus to finish his duties. Then, when in John chapter 17, verses 1 to 4, when Jesus is praying before he leaves the upper room, again, it's time. In John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, He basically says to the disciples, guys, get ready. It's about to happen. And now we're in John chapter 19, verse 28, and Jesus is saying, it's basically, it's done. What He's telling us in those words, what all those markers from John 2, John 12, John 13, John 17, John 18, and now John 19, all of those are kind of editorial things to say, God's been unfolding His plan. And it's on full display. It is happening. The supreme ruler, the one who's overall, is making things go exactly how he wanted them to go. Now it's really nice in a sense to say, hey, I, I hear that God unfolds His plan. God does what He wants. But what difference does that make to you and me? How, how should that impact my life? Or does that make a difference? I want you to consider again a couple of thoughts with me. first thought would be this. The crucifixion is arguably the ugliest moment in all of history. The purest and truly the only innocent person to ever walk on earth is brutally killed. By people who lied and manipulated and schemed and did all kinds of things so that He'd go to the cross and die. It's not a good moment in our history as humanity. It's our worst. It's the ugliest time ever. Second thought. If you and I were there that day, And we were standing there watching the crucifixion take place like the crowd of people that was there. We might have gone, hey, you know, this Jesus guy, He he did some moving things. He seemed to inspire people. He seemed to be a good guy. And He said all these things about God. But now He's on the cross. It sure looks like He failed. He's not winning. He's losing. And yet John is telling us in John chapter 19, verse 28, that's not the case. As much as it looked like a failure, in that moment, God's plan was still unfolding. In the ugliest moment of all of life and history, God's plan was unfolding. I want you to listen to a couple of verses in Acts chapter 2 that describe, hey, in the midst of this ugliest moment, God does this redemptive thing. Okay, how the early church, in essence, didn't run away from that message, but basically said, that is our message. Our message is in the ugliest moment of life, God does amazing things. God redeems people. God gives us salvation. Acts chapter 2, just a couple of pages over in your Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Peter, in front of a huge crowd of people, Kind of the spokesman for the disciples, the spokesman for the apostles says this men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the defense de- of Sorry, the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan, it's happening in this ugliness. More than one page, probably more over in your Bible, in Acts chapter 4, when the church gathered to pray, Acts chapter 4, verses 26-28. to They're praying these words. They're praying originally in verse 26 from Psalm 2, "...the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In the midst of the evil being done to Jesus, as horrific as that was, God's plan was unfolding. God's plan was advancing. His sovereignty was on display. Well, that raises a question. Can I or can you Fully explain how that all works? How in the midst of evil God's plan unfolds? Maybe we need to take that question from the realm of sort of abstract theory and philosophy and all of that and to put it in the crucible of our lives. Can I fully explain how God might unfold His plan in our lives? in the midst of our ugliest moments, in the midst of things that have given us our greatest heartaches. This past week, I listened to a podcast that interviewed a lady who had been sexually manipulated by her stepfather while she was in middle school and then was raped by her boyfriend in high school. Pretty ugly stuff. Can I give you a satisfying explanation of why that happened and how that is involved in the unfolding of God's plan? I don't think I can. Those are ugly and horrific moments. But those aren't the only ones that people experience. I certainly don't know everyone's story in the room this morning. But just on percentage likelihood, there's a very good chance that there's a number of you in this room that have had incredibly crushing experiences. And maybe the question to ask the one hanging on the cross when he says, I thirst, is Jesus, how can I delight in God's sovereignty if that happened in my life? How do I do that? Now let me repeat again, I cannot provide you a completely satisfying answer as to how terrible things happen and and we have ugly moments and we have heartbreak happenings. I can't. But I do want to offer you an observation from Jesus' ugliest moments that I think might help us much more than we realize. At the cross, in the words of John 19, 28, in Jesus' ugliest moments, God is still working. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, there's more to the Bible being written and we have sort of a look back from some of the epistles to that event. We know that at the cross, when those ugly things were happening, the ugliest moment was actually a display of God's love. And we also know that in that moment, at the cross, with all of that taking place, God's putting hope on display. God is saying, here's hope. In the darkest moment, He says, here's the hope. Now in our struggle to kind of get an explanation, I believe we'd benefit from some words that are written in Romans chapter 8 you want to turn to Romans chapter 8 with me we're going to read verses 31 and 32 the words that I think we need to hear in our souls again the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul said what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things Paul's saying hey God's for us I think that's what he's wanting to communicate he's saying God's on our side and sometimes that's hard for us to get but notice he ties it to the cross how do I know God's on my side because of the cross of Jesus Christ because of Jesus ugliest moment now here comes a a tension point a, a rub point a friction point for us God being for us. We hear those words. It's, it's not unavoidable. It's very sort of understandable for you and I to think, hey, if God's for me, then that means my life will be or my life at least should be easy. That everything should kind of flow smoothly from there. If God's on my side, you know, I mean, I can make the mistake. I grew up, the, the park that my parents' house backs onto, we grew up on a park, and I was the littlest kid in the neighborhood. So if I went out there by myself, I'd get beat up, taken advantage of. But if my oldest brother Brian was with me, the biggest kid in the neighborhood, oh, it was pretty smooth. And it's easy for me to think, well, if God's for me, God's bigger than Brian, that should go really smooth. But it doesn't, does it? look at Romans chapter 8 verse 36 just down a couple of verses tells us as it is written for our sake now realize the Bible quoting the Bible so quoting from Psalm 44 for our sake for your sake excuse me we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered so in the context of God being for us David, writing some words in the psalm that then Paul quotes from, that the Holy Spirit moves him to quote from, seems to be saying, guess what? God being for us might mean we might be exposed to the cruelty of ungodly people. We might be exposed to the fallenness of this world. I think that's part of the message of verse 36, folks. Ugly moments and heartbreaking happenings may very well be a part of our life experience. And you say, well, if that's true, why would I want to delight in God's sovereignty? Why would I want that to shape my life? Well, read with me verse 35, 36, and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Why delight in God's sovereignty? Why let that shape my life? Because even though ugly stuff can and will happen, in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, in a relationship that is started and continually re-sparked, continually re-energized by His love for us, in that context, what does it say? We are conquerors through Him. Jesus' love is bigger than anything you and I will ever face. Now, does that mean that life's going to be easy? No, it doesn't. Does that mean that we will always, you know, will it be hard for us to embrace some of the things that come into our lives? Yeah, there are going to be times it's going to be hard to embrace some things. But if we are shaped by our delight in His rule, in His will, as we say, in His kingdom coming, instead of me driving my agenda, if I delight in Him, not me, I receive the incredible blessing of being a conqueror with Christ. Instead of being run over by life, we conquer. In Jesus' obvious words of I thirst, He's telling us God wins. And that reality, that truth, should mark us and shape us and inform our lives so that we see how amazing God's love is for us and how we can get up tomorrow and face life. Shaping truth number two. If you're watching the clock, let me just underline the second shaping truth will be shorter. Shaping truth number two. Participate in God's plan. We need to participate in what God is doing. We need to join Him in that sense. Look with me again at verse 28 of John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Okay, look at the end of the verse. What I want you to just zoom in and what I want you to see is that Jesus saying those words, I thirst, wasn't because of the physical reality of what he was experiencing. It was because Scripture needed to be fulfilled. That there were things the Bible had said in advance that still needed to happen. In essence, God had said, Here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to do. How's that going to get worked out? I want you to turn with me because we're going to end up there to Psalm chapter 69. Psalm 69 is one of the places in the Bible where a lot is said, written in advance by David a thousand years earlier about Jesus and about really we'll get to his crucifixion. In Psalm 69 verse 4 we are told that Jesus was going to be hated by many. That seemed to be the case that day. We're told in verse 7 that Jesus will receive reproach for God. And that's really what was going on display there too. In verse 8, we are told that Jesus will be rejected by Israel and by His earthly family. Guess what played out? In verse 9 of Psalm 69, we are told that Jesus had a profound zeal for God and for the worship of God. And what did He do at the beginning of the Holy Week when He kicked people out of the temple, the money changers and all of that? Why? Because my Father's house will be a house of prayer. And then if you skip down a few verses just for time's sake, you go to Psalm 69 verse 21 and what does it say? They gave me poison for food and for thirst and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. Through the Holy Spirit-inspired pen of David, a thousand years in advance, There's an anticipation of sour wine being drunk. Now, not to be overly obvious, but just think about it. How does someone who is hanging on a cross with their arms spread out, nailed, get a drink? How does that happen? John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, to advance the plan of God, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. God's plan advanced because Jesus participated in it. He shared in it. He took a step. He said, this is what God's wanting to do, and I realize I'm connected to it somehow, so I'm going to take a step with it. I'm going to follow it to maybe make a more direct connection very clearly to our lives. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that God's people, people who have turned from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as their Savior, those people, God has already prepared in advance for us good works to do. He's calling to say, participate in what I'm doing. Join me in this work. Let's do this together. And as we looked at last week, last Sunday, at the very end of the sermon, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, God is commanding us to stir each other to love and good deeds. He's saying, let's engage in this. We further God's mission. We participate with Him. There's a sense in which Jesus' obvious words, of I thirst are a clarion call to you and me to get in the game. To participate with the Holy Spirit encouraging other people to follow Jesus. To to get in the game and participate in showing forth the salt and light of the community of Christ. To put it on display. He's calling us to do those things. I thirst. Participate. I've never done this before, but I'm going to make an assumption. I've made assumptions before, but not this assumption, at least not out loud. I'm going to assume that when you come to church, there might be things that you expect to hear. You know, I'm going to go to church. What are they going to say? Well, they're probably going to say that God's king. God's the supreme ruler. That's not a surprise thing to hear at church. It's also not a surprise thing to hear at church that, "Hey, you should join with what God's doing. You should obey." I mean, that's really what obeying is. It's joining with God in what He's doing. You kind of expect to hear those things. Kind of like the people hanging around the cross would have expected the people hanging on the cross to say, "I thirst." They're pretty obvious things you anticipate you know oh, I'm going to hear that but here's the thing folks if you and I allow God's obvious words to shape our lives i believe those words can help deepen our grasp of God's love for us can help deepen our deepen us being touched deeply by God's love so that our heartaches and our ugly moments, we know that He's there and we know somehow He still works and moves through that. So much so that it will really help us to become conquerors who can then work with God to advance His plan. I get it, there's a lot of obvious things that get said. But please do not miss the obvious words. Those words are really offering to you and me the incredible gift today of God's love and God's help, God's power, God's drive to how we live life. Do not miss the most obvious thing in the simple words, I thirst. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful to You that You shared Your Word with us. I don't deserve to hear it. None of us do. But You shared it with us. And Lord, it is so easy. We are in one sense so incredibly blessed in our culture to have so many copies of the Bible in so many different ways. It's easy for us to just say, oh, well, that's obvious. But I pray today, we are hearing you say those obvious things. And we aren't dismissing them, we aren't running past them. But we are asking you today, Spirit of God, to take those words. And to drive them so deep in us that we're shaped by them. That we're shaped by the depth of your love for us. And that the way we approach life isn't just informed by a biblical principle, but we literally are transformed because you are touching us in those deep spots in our souls maybe spots we never thought would ever see the light of day, and yet the light of the world can enter into them and redeem them and can turn us through his love into conquerors. Lord, I pray we are shaped by the obvious words so that we can go from this place as conquerors for the glory of God. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here this morning. May we hear you speak. And may that mark us. In the very precious and powerful name of Christ we pray. Amen.